My guest is David D.C. Cassidy. I was introduced to him by a mutual friend and mentor, Michael Fisk, a few months ago. D.C. is from the East Coast and originally specialized in the tech world. You'll learn how to attract investors and meetings. He touches on that. Then something horrible happened in his life, which you'll find out. It's anyone's worst nightmare. But then something magical sprung out of it as well. A silver lining, if you will. And guess what? He's a full-blown storyteller. His own life should be a novel or a streaming series. It's that good. So welcome back, listeners. This is DC Cassidy. Hello, this is Billy Moon. Thanks for tuning into my podcast. It's 2022 already, season three. As COVID stays in our lives, I missed talking and learning from other creatives. And I discovered a newfound hobby of connecting people to other people to get close to their dreams. So bear with my interview skills, if any, and dive into the stills of life. Are you ready? Let's go. DC Cassidy. Yes, sir. Do I call you DC or David? Uh, your preference. I like DC. That's cool. I like it too. Yeah. So yeah. maybe Marvel fans that listen to this might get confused and pissed <laughs> off. Uh, you know, hopefully not so. If you're a, if you're uh, a Marvel fan, I have a couple Marvel stories kind of coming up so actually you'll be excited by, by oh, the Marvel shit. stories yeah okay, well, I'll, I'll remember that yeah yeah a okay. couple of people in the Marvel in the Marvel world senior in the Marvel world I've, I've been fortunate to come across um, in the last three or four years actually really a part Marvel actually plays a very significant reason to why I'm here in Hollywood so. okay this is a good teaser and then we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that when, when we're about to wrap you yeah absolutely so uh, where are you from from State College Pennsylvania yeah, small town, uh, right outside Penn State University. So my parents immigrated from Nigeria in maybe oh. 1979, I think my dad did. And he would eventually take like an assistant professorship at Penn State in 1985 and and literally bought the house um, right before I was born. And I've been here. I was like, they. I've been there ever since. Same house. Yeah, yeah. He just sold the family house in August of last year. But up until then, my entire life we had wow, yeah, same house, yeah. That ne- that never happens. Yeah, you only, you only see that in the sitcoms, like yeah. where they keep the same house, yeah, for all those seasons of that show, sure. whatever. Because um, when I grew up in Hawaii, even though it's a small island of Oahu, we moved yeah. a lot. Wow, and I never understood why, but but growing up watching Home Improvement, Full House. I got so jealous that these characters are living in the same damn house <laughs> the same their house, whole life. Their whole life. And I was like, why are we moving so much? But, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. it's really a thing where you don't appreciate, like, anything else. You don't appreciate what you have. Yeah. And, you know, you went to friends' house. Oh, their house is a little nicer, bigger. They have a backyard where they can do a full-size football game, tackle football game, you know, or basketball court or whatever. Yeah. Um, but as you said later on, you realize, oh, it's kind of rare to have that much stability where – you literally in the same house. And yeah. uh, I can probably only think of, even in a small town, I can probably only think of a handful of my closest friends whose parents were in the same house their entire, like for their entire childhood. It's so rare. It is very rare. Yeah. And your parents are still in Pennsylvania? Yeah. So my, my mom passed away. Oh. And, um, and, Sorry. and I appreciate that in 2018 and about four years ago now. Oh. And my dad is, Splits time between Pennsylvania and between Chicago. He retired from Penn State, took a job in Chicago, and um, remarried. And his his uh, new wife is based in Harrisburg, 
So they split time between Pennsylvania and between Chicago, where he has kind of a condo slash apartment there. Which is just flying back and forth? I. Uh, he probably drives. It's a good question, actually. Drives? It's like an eight-hour drive, you know? When we were kids, we literally... Because I'm the youngest of five. Okay. We literally flew twice my entire childhood, 0 to 18. Oh. Once was to Nigeria and once was to London. We drove everywhere. We drove to Chicago. We drove to Texas. We drove to Florida. So for me, like getting in a car and doing a long drive... Like I drove Friday to, to, to Thursday night to the Palm and back on Friday. So I was like, that's a really long drive. I was like, two and a half hour, three hour drive is like, that's nothing. it's nothing. Not when you got, you drove 24 hours as a kid. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah. My friends make fun of me because I, I can't stand to drive more than like 30 minutes. Yeah. I guess Oahu <laughs> is not that big for road trips, huh? No, but you'd be surprised how much traffic there is. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's still kind of bad. Like you can cover the island in what, an hour, two hours? Two? Yeah. An hour and a half, maybe, if you're lucky. <laughs> cover um, the whole island. I'd say yeah. two, yeah. yeah. But you you, sh- you better from, make stops. From know? where I'm from in State College, Pennsylvania, you can't even get to the nearest city in an hour and a half. <laughs> like That's the nearest actual good. city, you know? This is very different. Wow. So your dad went from somewhere really cold. Now, I heard Chicago. I've never been to winter Chicago, but I heard terrible winter. Oh, it's brutal. Chicago is absolutely brutal. You know, I had this conversation with my mom, you know, a few years ago, and, you know, before she passed. And I was like, how do you go from Nigeria? Had you ever experienced cold before in your life? And she was like, no, not till she moved to the U.S. at like yeah. 25. Because she grew up in a, you know, in a different time, 60s, 70s, they didn't have electrical grid, wasn't as strong. Like you didn't have like like running water or electricity where she grew up. And so there wasn't like, you didn't take a cold shower, right? Like there was no concept of cold because if you grew up near the equator, the only thing that could be cold is if you're refrigerating it. Yeah. And if you don't have consistent electricity, you're not refrigerating. So maybe as it is, as like a treat once a year, she had like a cold drink, you know, but like, the concept of cold was foreign to her, yeah. and they moved to the U.S. Me too. And you go to a place like Chicago, where the wind is absolutely brutal, oh. just brutal. I mean, you go for a run, you come back, your hands are like your your fingers are. Yeah, you fro- come back different. <laughs> you come back different. You come back like, looking like the White not Walkers DC coming in my house. <laughs> this that, is the snowman. Yeah, this might be a White Walker, like. OG Game of Thrones, like <laughs> you know, like blue eyes and everything. Exactly. That's how that's how cold it is. Oh now I even though I grew up in Pennsylvania and we spent winters in Chicago for holidays, now I religiously avoid the cold. Good. Yeah. 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 And then when did you know you wanted to go into the film world? Whew, there was a long there's a long journey to get there. <laughs> in terms of just to give some context for people listening, like from where my family's coming from. My dad was the only one of 10 kids to graduate from high school. Yeah, okay. he's one of his nine siblings. And, you know, in Nigeria, it's a it's the British system. You pay for high school, right? K through eight is free, and then you pay for high school. So the family literally couldn't afford high school, and he was the most talented one. So they, just, they all saved to send him. And even still, he missed a year or two. He literally didn't have his first pair of shoes until he was 14 years old. So you grew up with the backdrop of having this family that came from extreme poverty and then moved to the U.S. to make a better life. Literally the, the classic American dream. You come to the U.S., 
you get education and then you 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 you, you get a plot of land in you know rural or suburbs etc and that's exactly what we did so right out of high school um you know it's the reverse right like i didn't realize how fortunate i was to to have grown up in one place or one super safe simple place so then you go trying to have experiences you're not used to right like different experiences so for me i went out of high school, I went to the Dominican Republic for missionary school right out of high school. I'd say I was 17 years old, and we spent three months in the DR, and then would end up spending two months in the Amazon jungle and in Peru. And uh, when I say Amazon, I mean like sleeping on a mat in an open air, you know, I'm not going to call it a hut, you know, but it's... it's The jungle. It's the jungle, you know, oh. where the flies bite and bleed you. Hell no. Where there's jaguars, there's no. alligators. I've seen the movies. You know, no. I guess crocodiles technically, like it's... No. Yeah, no. it's that. Damn. Like when you're watching a movie and there's a house on stilts with like a thatch roof and like open aired, that's, that's where we stayed for a month. Oh, <laughs> and that month must have felt like two years. You know, I think this is pre-cell phone era. <laughs> it was so to me. You just don't have any concept of like, I like to tell people this. There's a reason that missionaries and military recruit people who are super young. And it's not just because for health reasons. It's because you're kind of too stupid to know any better. Mm. Like now, if you said to me, hey, DC, get on a plane and then get on a boat for 18 hours into the heart of the Amazon where if anything goes wrong, your 20-hour canoe ride, motorized canoe ride back to, like, civilization, first aid, medical care, I'd be like, I don't know. The risk might be too high. Yeah. But when you're 17, you're just like, sure, whatever. Sure, let's do it. Let's do it. Like, you're yeah. you're not you're not thinking about the risk. Yeah, it's gonna, not that you think that you're, you're fearless. Let's go. You're just not even considering that there is a downside. <laughs> just, like, ignorant. Just pure ignorance. In a good way. Ignorance is blessed. Right, right. So we go down to Amazon. We're literally going like village to village by moonlight and showing like, you know, it's like this old like Jesus film from like the 70s or 80s. I don't know, like very classic, like whitewashed Jesus film. And we would show it in the jungle and we take a blanket, a projector, a laptop and a, and a, um, a generator. Uh-huh. We had to bring our own generator because none of these towns have electricity. Of course. Fire up the generator, plug your laptop into the into the thing, to the uh, converter, and you know you project onto a blanket hung from like the town <laughs> square. This film, and, and mind you, like the subtitles are in Spanish. You know, like great. Most of these people maybe kind of speak Spanish, but speak more of like whatever regional dialect they do. Uh-huh. And um, so it ended up just being us mostly doing a survey for kids. There, there's a stunningly lack of clean drinking water in the Amazon. And so this is like pre-charity water, but we would go survey the town, see which towns like had the most need for like, you know, clean drinking water. And a team would come behind us and do the whole like, well, solar panel, like clean drinking water type deal. And that was cool actually, because the Jesus film thing aside, that was the first time where I was like, oh, like I'm going to have like a material impact on someone's life. Like, like these people didn't have clean drinking water before and now you know we can mm-hmm. and it really brought got brought home the first time you know coming from central pennsylvania where there's very low crime there's very low poverty or anything and it's kind of really it's middle of the road it's like the sitcoms mm. it's 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 like i like to tell people i grew up in marty mcfly's house 
or uh, Ferris Bueller's house, oh, right? That's just fun. like middle of the road, like 1980s, like style America. Hill Valley. Hill Valley. Yeah. And then you go to the Amazon and you see a dead baby laying there for the oh. first time. And you're like, whoa, what is this? And the baby died from diarrhea. And you're like, what? And in, well, if you don't have clean drinking water, well, the, the diarrhea dehydrates you. And there's like no way to get like replenish or to heal or they don't have access to the same kind of medicines and you're like wow this is a whole other you know i knew it from my dad you'd hear the stories oh i grew up and you know but your dad it's your parents you know always like you know eat your food i grew up you know people were starving and you just kind of roll your eyes oh send them the food right like you know really sarcastic as a kid never really that never really flew with my parents but then when you see something in real life and you're like oh these people literally if you get sick and you're in the Amazon, there's no clean drinking water, there's no recovery, hmm. you know? And that really kind of hit home. And you're like, oh, this is like real now. This is like, and that's part of, I think, travel and serving humanitarian stuff perspective is that you're getting introduced to a whole other world where you literally could not even have fathomed that in the 21st century people live like that. Like uh, today with uh, Ukraine, I just can't understand yeah, just yeah. Can't understand it. I was just in Lisbon a month ago and and met several Ukrainians who either were there at the time when the conflict began, uh-huh. or had been in Lisbon for a year or two. And their families there, and it's like you're saying you can't fathom the idea. Like, oh, like you're just living in a city and they just started shelling it. Like, Shit. you know, like as if they just started shelling this apartment building or yeah, you know, Olympic yeah. Boulevard, you know, or 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 or, or L A. Los Angeles. Yeah. They just started shelling this place. We'd all be like, like, there's no framework for it, basically. You literally don't have a frame of mind to understand it uh-huh. because none of us growing up in the U.S. grew up in a war zone. Okay. So, like, yeah. Did you, like, I mean, what you told me is so visual. I mean, that's already, like, a limited series that you're probably going to make eventually. <laughs> like, The Boy from the Jungle. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, he's like, rising up into the visual effects world. So. Yeah. Well, I'll give, I'll give you the quick synopsis from there. So... From there, I actually um, go into the military. So I come back to the U.S. Oh. Yeah, I know. Kind of a, a very a left turn. No one's coming. I've seen this movie. And, yes. I, and I went to the military. And it's funny because everyone's like, how could you go from like, you know, saving lives, like taking him? And I was like, well, you know, first of all, I don't call it that drastic. I would say that the two rules that were the same between the missionary school and the military was um, be flexible. You gotta be flexible. There's a famous Mike Tyson quote. Physically, not no, not physically flexible. Oh. Mentally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Like oh. everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And the military infantry, literally infantry rule number one is no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So you drill and you drill and you drill and you practice and you practice and you practice. However, they recognize literally your plan is not going to survive once the bullets start flying. Right that and and. Right. Same thing with the missionary. You're up in Amazon, like, oh, someone has a 104 fever. They got to be, you know, they got to be canoed out. Oh, XYZ happened. Oh, we can't go further because of the water levels rising. Oh, this village thing, right? right? Like, nothing ever is going to go according to plan. And so you have to learn to be flexible and adapt. How to improvise. To exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's the main point of basic training and even missionary school is like, obviously, teaching the skills you need to, to, to do well at what you're doing. But I think from a mental framework, they're trying to teach you how to be flexible 
and how to improvise. And I had to learn it kind of for real, for real, because I had wanted to do special forces in the military Whoa. and um, was too young, actually. So it was funny, earlier we were talking about video games and um, too many kids were coming out of school playing these video games and wanted to do special forces. Well, guess what? The Army spends $2.5 million to train a person from off the street to deployable with a special forces unit. The average cost for an infantry uh, person is like $50,000. <laughs> so way different. So people are coming off the so, street the front line. and even a month or two of training in SF and then to quit is like wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars of the military's money. So yeah. they raise the minimum age requirement to 20 years old. Okay. And um, so here I'm 18, fluent in Spanish and you know, great shape had been, you know, an all American athlete in high school and thinking, you know, scored a really high score on, on the military entrance exam. And there was just no, that was the first time where I was like, oh, it ran into like bureaucracy of like, I checked all the boxes you guys want. And the drill sergeant promised me to have an opportunity. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter what they had promised. Remember what they said, the bureaucracy is like, nope, not 20, can't do it. Hmm. Your test scores are off the charts. Your, your PT score, like you're late, like everything is there, but because you're literally not 20 years old, you cannot do it doesn't matter what they told you. And for me, that was probably the first disappointment I'd had in my life where like I'd made a career swing at something. I'd left a full scholarship, a full track scholarship oh. in order to go into the military. And you couldn't wait two years. I, they didn't, they, you know, I, how, how should I say this carefully? I don't think they were entirely forthcoming at the recruiter's office about my opportunity to do special forces or not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know they had mentioned it in passing, like oh, they're just gonna waive it, you know, et cetera, for you, waive their clause, waive the requirement, and um, and so I committed, not knowing that 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 was that was uh -huh. a thing. Were you brokenhearted? Yeah, it was tough. I think it's it's tough. I, this is what I always tell people: you're okay with losing a race, sure. You're okay with losing a game. You're okay with creating a show and flopping, right? Like you would be okay with that. Because at least you got to be in the room and have the opportunity to do so. Mm. No one can control whether you're going to succeed or not, whether you win or lose, whether you fail or, or succeed. But at least you get a shot on goal. You get an opportunity. I think I was crushed by the experience because if I'd gone and like broken my leg or like or or failed or just flunked out or quit, then that's on me or mm. on the circumstances. But to not even get an opportunity. To get in the game, I think that was kind of crushing, yeah. And did that lead you to the creative side? It did in a roundabout way. Um, you know, I think for me specifically, like, I go from the military, I get an appointment to go to West Point. Wow. And I get to West Point, I realize, like, I'm not a lifelong career person. I'm not doing this military thing long term. And so I end up leaving school and going to San Francisco, getting in a car with a couple of friends, and we drive all the way west to San Francisco, California. Oh, and from Pennsylvania, literally I'd never even, I'd never been to SF before. I'd never been to California before. Wow. I don't think I'd been west at the time. I don't think I'd ever been west of Denver. I think Denver was the furthest west I'd been. Still too far. <laughs> and, you know, we get in this car, four of us, we end up sleeping in our fraternity's house in, in Berkeley, four of us in a room sleeping. Mm. And we had $2,000 to survive a summer in San Francisco. And, you know, literally, like, our friend's mom sent us, like, uh, corned beef and, like, 
packets mm. of rice just to make sure we we're like eating mm, food. Our special good. treat was that going to so In and Out. And like In and Out was like a gourmet meal to us. It still is. <laughs> still DC. is a gourmet meal. Yeah. I'm, and I want it right now. I raised a million dollars for my tech startup company. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait, wait, you can't just say that without like starting the back, the genesis first. Like, yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah. um, uh, first of all, I'm actually kind of excited that I don't really know you because I like to research beforehand. Sure. Um, like uh, our our mutual friend Michael Fisk uh, highly recommended you, and he he told me like you're involved in three three startups right now. Yeah. Okay. Correct, so yeah. now you just said you raised a million dollars for yeah. your startup. Yeah. Now. In the land of dreams that we're all in, everyone <laughs> fantasizes, everyone talks the talk, yeah. but they don't actually really take action. Yeah. So, please, DC, how did you do it? Thank when you. You're, I, I, when you're a nobody, <laughs> right? Like like I am, obviously. Yeah. Or like almost everyone else. Like, how did you do that? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I'm first generation American. Mm -hmm. um, you know, don't have any family connections. My entire extended family uh, is in, you know... Nigeria and and certainly doesn't have the resources yeah. or kind of any kind of family connections there. And I think part of it is there's this idea behind entrepreneurship that you're either a missionary or a mercenary. Mm. And mercenary is like, oh, there's a business opportunity there. It's very calculated. It's very like thought through like how do I make money? How do I turn this thing into business? There's no there's no like pro I mean there's pros and cons, but there's no judgment towards one side or the other. It wouldn't surprise anyone listening that I'm more of the missionary mindset. I don't really go and say, I'm going to start a business. It's more like at some point, the, the opportunity will come, will present itself to me. And if I think bigger, there's a big enough problem, I start a company around it to try to solve the problem. So we were in school you know, at Penn State and really had this idea to do like an app for college students. And realizing that there's so much synthesized of information, none of it was really like mobile format or mobile friendly. And yet like three fourths of like all college kids by this point had a smartphone. And yet the, the whole experience from the school standpoint was still on a laptop. They hadn't really mm. done anything mobile app wise. And so we're like, why don't we try to build like a like Facebook for learning? That was the first goal. Well, challenge is to be honest is that. Well, what year is this? This is 2011. Okay. It's 2011. And the problem is, is that in order to be with the learning system, the LMS, the learning management system, you got to have a deal with the university directly. But you know who works even slower than Hollywood BA and Hollywood lawyers? University lawyers and oh. university, you know, um, you know. Even I, today? CIO people, even today. And I did not so, know that. And no, they work, so, I mean. Slow. What incentive they have to do anything quickly? They've been around for hundreds of years They've got endowments that are massive. I don't know, money? No, because students are going to keep paying 50K a year out of state to go to Penn State or to go to Cornell or to go to any of these schools. 70K a year. True. And so the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a monopoly, right? It's, it's, sure. It's, it's an oligopoly. Right? There's very few places that are worth all that money. And if you're Penn State, as long as you're, you know, whatever, no one cares whether or not you have an app, right? Like, they're going to go because it's party school, because maybe they're engineering, maybe they go for the football, you know, et cetera. Like Stanford doesn't need to have the best tech to get people to go. People go to Stanford because of Stanford. And what happened after the app launched? So we got we got to like number 17 in the app store 
in like the first day or two, which was crazy. What's it called? Of course, investors. Uh, so the the specific app, right? This one, uh, Luma, you know, was the name of it. Luma. And okay. so we we met with the investors, and obviously, when you have traction, investors get really excited. I'll never forget. I had ten cents in my bank account when we closed our first. Come on, hundred thousand. Is that really true? Ten cents typical, in my bank typical account. Typical actor story. <laughs> like I had a dollar in my account. Oh, you know, seven bucks, right? The Rock is Dwayne, said seven yeah, bucks. Yeah, I had ten cents in in your checking account. In my checking account when we closed the deal. Yeah. So uh, you're saying your friends created the app, launched it. Yeah. So like then, the the, the, the four of us, like the four of us together. We're in some incubated program. And honestly, you're in San Francisco. San Francisco is like to attack what LA is to entertainment, right? Like hmm. in the sense of the proximity, the relationship, the fact you could just be walking on the street and see someone famous, right? In tech, you're going to see like a billionaire founder. Or you're yeah. going to go to the bathroom at, you know, at this holiday party. And next to you is the CEO of and founder of Dropbox, right? Like yeah. that's an, an SF compared to LA. It's so small of a city, so it means everything is really concentrated. So if you have a little traction, you're young, you got a good story, you know. Honestly, though, we probably had 113 investor meetings. 13 of them said yes. So I mean, our our rate at that point is nine rejections at every ten. Okay, that sucks. But the fact that you got 13, that's better than no. It's good, but it's it's the point. The moral of the story is like keeping your mental game up. Yeah. When you get ghosted, when you get rejection, when you get, you know. Yeah, it's like dating. A hundred no's yeah. just to get 10 yeses, right? It's it's really, it's funny you say that. I tell you all the time that I think dating and, um, I think dating and business are very, very closely correlated. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. how I would say from an investment standpoint. You know, there's scarcity, right? So like there's going to be, uh, like even on apps, they'll say like most of these apps, like 85% guys, right? True. And so very, very high proportion of it. Imagine that that's, that ratio is founders to investors. Okay, where all these founders are desperately trying to get with this very small subset of investors. But the way that investors work, they don't really want the ones that want them, right? Like they don't want the ones that want their money. They want the ones that don't need it, don't want it, that don't need it, that don't need them. Mm. That's the thing that's attractive to an investor. And it, it's not even like there's some game you have to play. It's, you know, you know, because you're not seeking them out. You meet with them. You're not dismissive. You're kind. But you know that there's 50 other investors that would give you money. So it gives you the confidence to go to a meeting and be like. It makes you look hotter. 100%. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't really need, I don't need this to happen or not. We're good either way. Yeah. Like, why do I need you? So we raised a million dollars within the next few months. <laughs> Yeah. Just like that, yeah. Just like that. Well, I, I, I our love- biggest check was two fifty k. So it was a lot of like fifty to a hundred k. Two yeah. one two fifty k check, one two hundred k check, and then honestly, every other check might have been under a hundred k. I, I, I want to get into the nooks and crannies of that for like young entrepreneurs like yourself. Sure. Like when just to backtrack, like when investors contact you, is it like an email or is it like a like a cold usually call. email yeah okay. and e- how, even, do, how do they know your email like most things in life like hey you should talk to my friend mark or you should talk to my friend susan or you should talk to my friend alex or dc or dc uh-huh. like michael did with us you're you're like 100x more inclined 
to have that conversation. Okay. So versus, someone was tracking your app's success and they said, this guy DC. Correct. Hey, you're, in a, you're in SF, you're meeting other founders okay. who have their own investors. And they're getting to know you're hanging out with them. Maybe you party with them. Maybe you hang out with them. Maybe you go to coffee with them. Maybe you work out of their office. And so they get to know you. They vouch for you. And then when you have success, oh, do you mind if I introduce you to these five people? And you're like, sure. And now you have to do that a dozen times. You've just met 60 people. Okay, so in your first meeting with investors, like this, this is a, these are all silly questions, but I think they're relevant. It's like, <laughs> yeah. how do you dress? What do you bring? Yeah. Like, I, it's funny because I think I over-indexed at one point too casually, but like I come from like Penn State where it's like, you know, it's not like a, a, a super preppy school, right. but I had kind of developed a reputation for, you know, I ran for student body president. I kind of developed a reputation for dressing like, very sartorially for like a college kid, right? Like I was. You're, you're like Jason Schwartzman from Rushmore. <laughs> like you just want to like dabble in everything, right? So I just, I just, I just wasn't. Uh, I wasn't wearing sweats. I was wearing ties and in and okay. was a fraternity, right? It was just so like that, that became your casual. So it wasn't like a headache to be like, oh, I got to suit up for this meeting. So, but then when I go to, but when I go to SF, yeah. when in Rome, do as the Romans do. A founder wouldn't be caught dead in a tie. Or suit, or honestly, even business slacks. A founder in SF is going to wear a hoodie, right. jeans. You know the Zuckerberg, the the the, uh, the, uh, the Zuckerberg or the Steve Jobs playbook, right? Like, right, some jeans, hoodies, or running shoes, some hoodies. Yeah. And I think one time I showed up to an investor meeting like shorts and a hoodie, and uh, and the guy bring us there, pulled me aside. He's like, okay, this is too casual. Even for Silicon Valley, this is too That's casual. a little too casual. Like gym yeah. shorts, no. But that's the point. Like, it's almost it's almost inverse. If you look really formal, they think, "Oh, this isn't a real serious coder. They're not, right. they're not serious founder people. They care too much about what they look like." Right. A real serious founder, entrepreneur, engineer doesn't care what they look like. It's not they're not in it for money. They're after they're, your brain. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. And what do you bring to it? What, what do you, you bring? bring visual to aids. It? I mean, you, what you know, do you I bring? used to pitch with um, a laptop and with a was what we call a pitch deck. Right. Which like everyone else would just call a PowerPoint. Same with film. Now I would say that um, I wouldn't even use the pitch deck as a prop, to be honest. Like I look at a pitch deck as like this. If you need a pitch deck to sell, you're not going to sell it anyways. Oh. Number two, you don't want someone just reading your deck, which is what's going to happen. If no. you put something on screen right now, I would stop listening to you and I would start reading what's on screen. That's just natural human instinct. So much better to like have either as little information as possible on these deck so that when you're presenting, they have to listen to you right. because they can't just read ahead of you um, or just not even to use a deck at all. Like these days, I don't even pitch with a deck. And the thinking is verbal? like, I, I can have a left, I actually would rather send the deck in advance. Mm. I'd rather send the deck in advance so you read it and Good you know, even if, let me know, this might be a waste of your time. Okay, it's great. Let's not even meet. But if you read the deck and you still want to meet, okay, you already read it. I'm not going to present with that deck. Okay. Or maybe we met like over coffee or out and I meet and give you the pitch verbally. Then you're like, hey, send me the deck, email me the deck as a follow-up, right? So that you later you have something to kind of reference. It's usually a PDF. Exactly. It's and you want to keep the, the page count very, very small, right? Very small. I mean, or 10, 12 pages max. Okay. Yeah, 10, 12 pages max. And it's, it's they're, all, they're all the same. Literally, we're all reading from the same playbooks. Remember how I said Hollywood is so much more opaque than than tech tech i mean you have 
a hundred guides on the internet of here's the top decks, here's what to do, here's what to say, here's what to say in your email responses. No one's doing that for Hollywood. No one's saying like, hey, you got a development pitch meeting with uh, Disney. Here's the exact copy paste you should say. Here's how what you should say to it in a query to a manager. Right. Here's like people are hiding that information. If anything, right. I mean, you should that, just be you. I mean, sure, just, sure. just pitch it passionately, right? Uh, but I think there's things in decks people want to see. Mm. Team slide, revenue slide, market size slide. How big is the mar- How yeah. big is the market? How how big is the team? What's traction you have? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a typical deck would look like this in, in tech, right? It's intro. Oh, we're we're doing whatever. Problem slide, solution, product, traction, or like whatever, like you know, traction you have in the marketplace, revenue, market size, team slide, and then like maybe if you've raised money, like investor info, and like that's it. It's that's it. Oh, nice. And 80% of startups, probably 95%, are gonna have some version of that deck. And when you get in these meetings with all these investors, like yeah. psychologically and behavior-wise. What are you looking for? You know, like I how think to trust this is this person. I think this is where the like dating that. thing comes in. Dating. I think it's just like it's not quite as formal as dating because obviously for most people, if they're monogamous, they're probably dating, plan to date one person at a time. Yeah. And whereas you can have multiple investors, but it's not as casual as a friendship. It's definitely way more intense than a friendship. Sure. So I would say it's somewhere in between, where more intense than a friendship, but less as intense as a dating relationship. And at that point, it's just chemistry. Like this is why Hollywood and tech end up becoming so nepotistic and so you know, unfortunately, prone to bias is because if your only metric for investing or buying a project from someone after they get through all the hoops is, do you like that person or not? Well, most people like people like themselves. Mm. Okay, people like people from their same background that look like them, that talk like them, that act like them. Oh, you're from Pennsylvania. <laughs> Me too. Okay, right. And so, you know. I'm sure there's cases where people are explicitly excluding people, but I think more most of it is probably generally people are implicitly being like, I want to work with people that 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 I like, and I like people like myself, mm. because we're all as humans, narcissistic and self-absorbed. We want to be around ourselves and people like ourselves. So I think with that mentality, there's part of it that initially when you start meeting with investors, you're like struggling because you're trying to like, what lines do I gotta say? What yeah. uh, you know, how do I gotta present myself, right? What cologne should I use? What outfit should I wear? But the reality is you realize they're gonna like you or not like you. Just sell yourself period. first. Yeah, period. And then sell your product. 100%. Because second. they're not an early stage startup. You don't have anything anyways is worth anything. And when they cut a check, I mean, they can't make it directly to your name into your checking account. So what do you do? I mean, for the young people out there. Like- yeah, no, by then you've, you've set up a company. Okay. Nowadays it's so much easier. Stripe Atlas. Literally not promoting them at all, but they have like a $500 program where it's like you sign up with Stripe Atlas and for $500, they literally do all your incorporation, all your legal documents. Like an LLC? All Well, most startups are like C corporations. It's funny. I visited Michael Fisk recently, the MGM offices, uh-huh. and they have the original corporation document from United Artists from 100 years ago, Charlie Chaplin and, and the, the other artists. And guess where they formed? Delaware-based C corporation. And I laugh because a hundred years later, a tech company in 2022, when they form, would form as a Delaware-based C corporation. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have the legal reasons that all the major tech companies are formed as a Delaware-based C corporation. That's just the industry standard. Anything else would be seen as weird. 
one of the things you learn early on is like you're not trying to innovate and like, oh guys, like I, I, my corporation is like, you know, formed in the jungle, the Amazons under the laws of Peru. People be like, what? Right? Like, <laughs> you want to innovate with the thing you want to innovate with. Yeah. Not like the structure of your company. Not like your investment documents, not your legal documents. Like, yeah. that's all pretty standard. The, the room for your innovation as a founder is like your actual product or your individual story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So do you need... Uh, these are just business questions I, I wish I learned in film school. But no, it's do, great. Do you need a lawyer to set a company or you could just do it yourself? Technically, you could. It's kind of like filing taxes or you know, any part of the law. The law is out there. It's all publicly available, especially in the internet era. Uh-huh. And the filings and the forms are there. But realistically, the average person would need like a Stripe Atlas or would need even a legal Zoom. Again, I, I wouldn't use legal Zoom personally, but like, hey, it's still out there, right? And the point is that LegalZoom or Stripe Atlas is effectively serving as your lawyer, giving you the right documents you need, and helping you to file them electronically. And in the days of like um, every once in a while, I hear these massive like federal cases of like like these Ponzi schemes. Like, how do how do investors like trust an entrepreneur when they're cutting these checks? Yeah, they don't. I mean, obviously they do diligence, right? They do uh-huh. diligence. They try to look. Um, you know, they Google you. They're going to have some analysts on their team, you know, do some research. I would say for angel checks, 25 to 50K, they probably know you. They Googled, they've Googled you. They've read whatever's out there about you. And yeah. that's it. They just trust your gut. Okay. And I would say for the bigger checks, I would say once you get to 500K, a million, there's intense diligence, right? Like you got to submit a packet of diligence. You got to answer questions, do like, you know, basic background checks, et cetera. You know, whether it's like known or they're unknown, right? Like they may be doing diligence on you behind your back, uh, asking people that know, okay, give references to this person, give tell us who they know and what kind of what business they've done in the past, and they would ask you also for diligence. Okay. How long so did it take you to raise a million from those thirteen people? Uh it probably take I wanna say between September twenty eleven and January twenty twelve. Whoa. You know, raise a million dollars. So yeah. That's quick. Yeah, yeah. And where did that go? Which company did that go into? Uh, no, so it went to, into the ed tech company. This ed tech company. Oh, okay. And, you know, we were hiring employees probably too fast and uh, <laughs> probably paying people too much. And uh, <laughs> You got a little excited there. Yo, you got really excited. And I think it's hard to go from your startup with no money. Yeah. It's like being a poor person. You get drafted first in the NFL. Now you got a check for ten million. You you never seen money before. You get a car wash every day. Yeah, you don't you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to budget, how to plan. Right. I'm 22 at the time. Co-founder is 20, and the other co-founder is 17. Wow. Average age in our team was like, including the employees, was like 21. So like you're a bunch of young Woo! idiots, ambitious, who don't, who don't know what to do. You have ambitious and, and talent. You don't have experience. You don't have wisdom. And it's you're not tough. A, yeah, you're not a financial advisor. And it's tough because you got there maybe based on like how strong, how smart you were. Mm. But the thing about Silicon Valley I have to tell people, I'm sure you feel this way about Hollywood as well. You get to talk to 10 smart people in Silicon Valley, they tell you 10 different things. Yeah. And it's not like one, it's not like black or white, one is good, one is evil. That would be obvious, you do the good thing. But it's more like, no, that person's advice is literally opposite to the other person's advice and neither is morally right or wrong. But they are diametrically opposed ideas. Some people, for example, in SF believe that you should, the WeWork mentality, right? the Uber mentality, right? That you should be burning through a ton of money to grow quickly. They call it blitzscaling now. 
in That's order terrible. to try to grow as quick as possible in order that the corner market or raise a bunch of money further. Other people would say that's the stupidest thing ever. You should build a sustainable business, get profitable, and and grow that way in a sustainable way. But both schools of philosophies out there. So what if I'm raising money and I go to advisor one who's like, no, you should be burning through a ton of money and grow as quickly as possible. But what if that advisor two tells me the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean where Silicon Valley is when you get two complete different notes from two different people that are literally opposing each other. And that becomes kind of one of the unique challenges of kind of that area so you get all these daily dilemmas these hard choices like these these jack bauer choices you know (laughs) it's like you make one decision but you still lose kind of thing so it's like uh, i that's where i would kind of definitely freeze and tense up so i mean you just trust your gut or you just talk to your circle i think you make mistakes i made i made several for sure yeah and um i think part of the problem is you you like imagine if you're like What's the biggest mistake you made you can publicly share? In the startup game? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who want to start. So I read the book The Facebook Effect by David Kirkpatrick. Okay. And we were building an app for college students. So we felt we were following in the footsteps of Zuckerberg. We'll do everything he does. Get a house in Palo Alto. They got a house in Palo Alto. Understandable. You know, humans are remedic. You start mimicking things, yeah. especially because here I am you know, from Pennsylvania and our competition, and I don't mean competing for our app, I mean in terms of fundraising and stuff like that, are from Stanford, Yale, you know, gone to these schools. So the best we could do, we would mimic. They bought a $35,000 Infinity Q5 <laughs> that they called the Warthog. We had a $2,000 land like that Halo. we also yeah. called the Warthog from Halo Yeah, that broke down. <laughs> This dummy, and by this dummy, I mean myself, oh. said the Facebook people bought this Infinity Q5 SUV or whatever. Come on. I'm going to go buy an Audi Q7 Come on, for $40,000. And because I don't have any credit or anything like that, there's no lease. There's no like- Oh, you have they, no credit. Just cash. Just straight oh, up boy. bought it with cash. Oh, they must have been sweating. This became kind of the- uh, <laughs> They're like, this guy just walked in here with 40K. I think when when things go well, and it's funny because this became like, literally became the thing that on, helped unravel everything. I think when you're, like I said, when you're in, when things are going well. It's hard to see. You you don't, you don't, you're just like, you're trying to keep the engine going. You know, like I said, you, you've made, every decision you've made has been criticized. Oh, you guys shouldn't go to California. It's never going to work out. Mm. You Boom, it works out. Oh, you guys are not going to raise any money. Da da da. We raised money. Worked out. Oh, you're not going to be able to launch the, these number of campuses. It works out. So you get used to doing the opposite of what people tell you to. Right. The challenge as a founder is you're getting so used to going the opposite left where they tell you right. You 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 zig where they say Zach. Okay. Mm. Now when they tell you to do something like, hey DC, don't buy that car. You don't need it. You're like, well, why not? I've, I've been right every other time. Yeah, right? it's worked like, out. And it always works out. So yeah. why in this case would I believe you? So I think when you see some of these bigger stories, whether it's WeCrash or Theranos or Uber, et cetera, I think you have to take into account this person's literally got to where they were because they were ignoring all, mostly all of the other advice they were getting. Yeah. And so now it's hard for your own filter in your head to like which advice you listen to now when you literally are accustomed to, to, to going so now 
So to bring it full circle, biggest night of our life, we're pitching, we're going to raise $5 million. Whoa. I drive up to San Francisco because we're living in Menlo Park. On the way back, cop pulls beside me on the highway. I'm driving oh, the no. Audi Q7. Okay? Oh, no. They shine the spotlight in the car. Were you dressed all like... I, I was regular. Yeah. But, you know, maybe they didn't like who they saw driving behind the wheel of this car. Oh. They got behind me, pulled me over. And long story short, to keep it long story short. Are these white cops? 100%. They, I end up at the jail. For what? Accused of assaulting an officer. <laughs> okay. From that stop? From this from this traffic stop. And uh, DUI and all this other stuff. Of course, <laughs> blood work come back, 0.0 BAC. You know, this is like pre-body, you know, now it would have been, now I probably, honestly, they probably This was 10 years me, ago, right? Like 10, yeah, a million dollars okay. to go away because of obvious, like, you know, abuse of, of, of kind of the Were you registered to the car? There literally was no issue. I mean, like, it was, they pulled wow. me over. And they, they saw me drive in. an $80,000 car. Like, right. we didn't spend 80000 on it, but it's brand new. And Q7's $80,000, car. Pull, pull me over. And, um, you know, this is a decade before BLM. This is a this is years before that. So to explain to my investors, hey, I got pulled over and charged with a felony, assaulting an officer was a felony, and I didn't do anything wrong. You were in your car the whole I time, I literally right? drove over, pulled over, and then they said that I refused to tell. I was like, no, I did the field sobriety test. And no, you refused. We're taking you in 0, 0.0, you know, overnight, et cetera. The investors had no empathy. They're like, there's oh, no what? way that someone... Remember, they think they're so smart. There's no way that you could get pulled over and taken to jail if you hadn't done anything wrong. Right. This is why so many people were shocked two years ago with post-George Floyd because you now you have undeniable evidence when you watch the George Floyd video of bad behavior. Undeniable. Yeah. Without a smartphone era, people would never have believed that. They would have been like, no... He was resisting. They they pinned him. He choked. They wouldn't have said they, the cop in the report would have been like, you know, he struggled. We forced him down. We restrained him. And then later in, in the uh, in the in the ambulance ride, he died on the ambulance ride. That's what they would have said without without the without the video record. So to get pulled over by cops in 2012 with no bite, no whatever, nothing. They're just like, well, you clearly you did something wrong. Even if you didn't assault an officer, you must have done something. To be in that position. Yeah, you moved your arm a little bit and they thought, yeah, he was going to hit me. No, but in this case, it was because I was speaking Spanish. Like, I was like angry, like, what? Why am I being da da da? And they said that was an assault. Listen, they were were playing reindeer games at that point. They know none of it's going to stick in court, but they can mess up your life just by accusing you of things. Mm. Right? So that was the beginning of the end of the company. The investors find out, they weaponize it. In the middle of a fundraising deal, any distraction is crazy. So to have a black founder who just got arrested, okay, you know, and had to bail out for five thousand or whatever, and um, literally the first time a handcuffs have ever been placed on me, like what I, I literally look at no criminal record. But remember, you're asking me to give you millions of dollars. Yeah, if you're Elon Musk and this happens, but you've already made these people billions, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But when they don't yeah. really know you from Adam, to your point earlier. Right about how can they just trust you? Right, any little thing is going to cause the whole house of cards to flat tarnish. So even if you're like, oh, you try to explain, well, this and that. Remember, get no empathy. 
there's a bunch of white investors in Santa Clara County in Silicon Valley who are like, oh, this black dude got arrested, pass, like pass, kill it. And so we went from going to raise five million, turn down offers to sell the company for twenty million dollars, to within six weeks, it's all gone, it's all done. So I go to Machu Picchu. This is traumatic, right? This is traumatic. Yeah. Because you're like, the worst thing that had happened to me in my, at this point in my life was this traffic stop. Yeah, I bet. And, instead, and not only did I not get empathy, but then they used it to, to tear down my company. And then you retaliated, right? They, they're all dead. <laughs> A wise man once said nothing at all. No, and I would never. And violence obviously is not the answer. And I would have been furious. It was really, it was really challenging. It was a challenging eighteen months, and it and it, it gets worse too, actually. Oh no! And um, but the creative part is a silver lining. I go to Machu Picchu because I okay. went to Peru at seventeen. I got to Machu Picchu. I was skiing for three months in Utah. I was training with a former U.S. men's men's national ski team coach, and I go to Machu Picchu, and it's the most spiritual journey of my life. I don't mean religious. I mean spiritual. Sure. Yeah. I feel like I got to clarify there was no drugs involved because everyone's like, oh, you were taking like ayahuasca or something. I was like, I have no problem with anything, but no, personally. No. Ayahuasca is optional. Everybody. You know, it, it was just the just feeling the Incas, feeling the fact that these people lived here hundreds of years before. They built this beautiful, in the middle of, you know, of, the, of a 10,000 foot plateau, 60 miles from Cusco. Yeah. It took us five days to hike there with modern whatever. And you're like, obviously, I'm sure they probably went quicker than us. And I was so blown away. And I was like, I got to tell a story, you know, around this. I got to do maybe a Zelda-like video game where instead of these Zelda dungeons, you go to ancient wonders of the world. You go to Incas or or, or uh, Aztecs or the Mayans. Or maybe you go to Great Wall of China. Maybe you go to Egypt. Maybe you go to ancient Rome or Greece. And you got to learn about history through the world of the video game. From a fantastical view, right? Mm. Well, no one's gonna make me a hundred, give me a hundred million dollars to do a video. Zynga's falling, failing at the time, and this has been. So, if you're a liberal, you're like, "Oh, Zynga's failing. I don't care." And then this is right after um, one tragic uh, mass shooting, to be honest. And the the like the uh, Republican leading investors we met with were like, they blamed video games for the um, for like the, the shootings. That was kind of like their. That was their uh, might as well blame the movies too, yeah, right? right? Mean, like the usual. That was that was kind of their take. The nineties. So I go back home to Pennsylvania. You know, I, probably the most depressive I've ever been in my life. And I had gone in one generation from dad who didn't own a pair of shoes. He was fourteen. Mm. Okay, to one generation later, last born son is about to sell a company for twenty million dollars. I would have netted four or five million dollars pre tax from it at the age of twenty three. Not you know, too bad. And in an instant, it's all taken away. A yeah. Thanos snap of the fingers, and it's all destroyed. And so the biggest professional mistake I made was the uh, the biggest professional I made was was the car that led, and 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 that's where the car became kind of this. I don't know that there's a term for it, but like because the car leads to me being pulled over. Because if I probably just been driving that old warthog thing we had. Or Ubering, smarter, just Uber or Lyft. Even if it's a $200 Uber from SF down to, to, to Lyft, at least I'm not driving. I'm mm-hmm. not exposed. Get a friend. All last summer, I Uber and Lyft around LA, and people were like, oh, you, I'm sure you don't drive. I'm like, oh, you don't understand. It's actually like nice to like Uber and Lyft and know that like 
there's no zero possibility you're safe that I'm gonna have some kind of interaction with the police yeah like I'm not at zero but like near zero because I'm not driving yeah so like I can't get pulled over because I'm not driving I'm just yeah. a passenger in this car and and so that that was something nice but that so sucks. I'm I go back and I meet this girl at through church oh not good though oh <laughs> whose oh. dad is a cop oh and this began please uh, tell me it's not the same cop that no 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 this is pennsylvania this is not this is he happened to move over there and he joined the force <laughs> and it's like oh hey it's you you know so i'm you know i'm born and raised in this town i was the most decorated kid out of my high school uh-huh. all american in track all state in football did mission trips like they know who i am in this town Jeez. it's a small town you don't sleep you know <laughs> small town so I think part of me thought I'm protected. Mm. Like I didn't have a negative view of cops. Even after everything that had happened, ah, Santa Clara, these cops over there, like, but like they don't, they don't know me from Adam. If I would have got pulled over to state college, they're not gonna, they're gonna arrest me for DUI with 0.0 BAC because they know who I am, you know? So I think I thought I was somewhat protected. Talk to this girl. Dad was a cop. There was some unfortunate family drama there. And I, I never forget, I get a call from like some unknown number in State College. And it's like um, they're filing a PFA. Like the family, this family's filing a PFA against you. PFA is a restraining order in the state of Pennsylvania. Protection from abuse. And I'm like, what? From who? From the girl and their family and, and all this. Out of the blue? No, no, no. I mean, we had been, you know, friends for a few months. Okay. And, you know, without going into this specific detail, there was something that sure. she brought to my attention, unfortunately. Okay. Like at Pandora, one of the things I what I tell, I think I tell people now, there's a line from Thanos. I mean, we both love movies, obviously. Yeah. There's, a, there's a line from, you remember I would tell you about Marvel. This isn't the Marvel thing, but I'll tell you, Marvel movies inspired me, where Thanos says to Tony, and he's like, you're not the only one cursed with knowledge. And what I have to tell people is knowledge is a curse. Not like the tree of like knowledge curse type curse. I mean, like once you know, you can't unknow. She told me something that she shouldn't have told me about her family and their stuff. And once she told me, it became like Pandora's box. Oh, he knows this thing about us. We have to destroy him now. Because if you do kill the messenger. Like a witness. If you do kill the messenger. The person's not even, if they even try to bring up this thing down the road, they've already been, you know, ruined. Okay. There's a line in Gladiator to bring in another movie quote where he tells where uh, literally the African, I think that's his name, like on the title card, Dijamar Hun Tzu's character, and he tells Russell Crowe's character, he's like, You have a great name, Maximus. First, they must kill your name, and then they kill you. They can't just kill you. Because you have a great name. People know who you are. They've got to kill your name first. Like your image. Your image, your, your reputation, status. your character. they got to yeah. kill that first. And then they can kill you. Which in some ways is worse. <laughs> she died twice, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and the like man your legacy is like nullified. 100%. And to grow up in that town that I grew up in, I'm 24, 25 at this time. And to see it all come down, you know, they arrest me. They say I stalked the girl. You know, all this other crazy stuff. And it's one of those things like, like we're sitting here now in your apartment, right? 
And it's one of those things where, because again, remember I said about the seed of doubt that I found from the first time I'd ever been arrested with the DUI thing. The fact that it even happens now has people questioning. So were you drunk? No. Well, why did they pull you over for DUI? Bro, I don't know. Like, like you, you see what I'm saying? It's inception. Once the doubt is there, mm. there's always going to be a percent of people who now believe it just simply because you were accused of it. Right? This is like the beginnings of cancel culture in a way. 100%. They'd rather believe the dark shit. Like, you must have had even family members and friends ask you. 100%. People, you, were, you must have been like, because Don't the you DUI know stuff, it was known within the company stuff, but it wasn't like there were written articles about it. This one, oh, good. articles, press, you stalked this girl, da da da. You showed up at her work, you showed up at her place. And you'd be like, did you do it? And you'd be like, did I do what though? Like, did I have a friendship with someone and they told me to come see them at work or come see them mm. at whatever? And I yet came, yes. And now they're saying that I came on wanted, but like, no, I didn't. And I could show you, but like, it's the all point, flipped. it's all flipped. Wow. Right, like I'm sitting here in your apartment now. A week from now, office. You're in your office. Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> in, in your office, and now a week from now, you you call the cops and say DC came to my office unannounced. Right, and I can I have a uh, log of him in here. Like I've my uh, ring doorbell caught him, you know, entering, and I didn't want him. I told him to leave, and he refused to leave. Now, <sighs> of course, in our case, they yeah. literally would just go look at the records. And see the email check, and they and then they would be like, "You you lied to us. You, we can see that you guys emailed." But imagine how the cops were on your were your were for some reason on your side, right? Oh, we're gonna ignore and pretend that these emails don't exist of you guys setting up the business meeting, and we're just gonna be like, "Yeah, yeah, DC just showed up unannounced." And so when people would ask me, I'm like, "It's not about the facts. It's about." Because her family is co- a cop, it doesn't even matter what the truth is. Mm. The truth is literally whatever they're going to say it is. Like, and I think, again, this is pre-George Floyd. This is pre-BLM. I think what was shocking for people, not just because George Floyd is black, but because like the cops obviously lied about it afterwards, like in the reporting. And then you see the video and you're like, oh, like this is irrefutable proof that cops lie. And I think if you grow up privileged in America, you don't believe that. The only time you get an interaction with a cop, you call 911 because you, listen, I called 911 the other day. I'm coming up back from India and there's an accident on the highway. Hey, I called 911. Hey, uh, uh, this is uh, DC Cassidy. I'm just call- I was an uh, accident on the highway. I just want to report it, make sure everything's good, et cetera. And they're like, oh, thank you for giving us the information. We already have people en route. You know, the first person to call, basically, you know, thank you. Normal interaction, you know. Uh, you know, if we called nine one one right now and said, "Hey, someone's hurting or in pain or danger," they would come and we would expect like a professional response, right? So, not every interaction with cops. I would argue ninety nine percent of interaction with the cops in my life have been good, and I would say a hundred percent for most people from privilege, they get pulled over for speeding when they're actually speeding, right? So, it, it kind of gets you to believe a pattern where when they say something, it's true. Oh, um. Mr. Smith, we pulled you over at 80 and a 65. Is there any reason you're speeding? Well, Mr. Smith knows he was speeding. He was going to 80. So it makes them seem credible. So then when they say someone like me had done something bad, in your mind, you're like, well, every time I've had an interaction with the cops, they're telling the truth. I really was speeding. Or I call them and they came to emergency. 
Mm. Right? Like, so you believe that they're always telling the truth. And of course, the, 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 the cops aren't going to put in their own report, oh, the girl is the daughter of the police officer and we're a, there's only 56 of us and we're kind of like the keys to, like they're not gonna, they're not gonna put anything that makes you look good in this thing. They're gonna put all this stuff that, that makes you look bad. And um, my godmother knew the family actually, because we all went to the same church. This is a small town, right? We all went to the same church. Former DA goes to my church. She's like, I want you to call the former DA. So I call him. And he's like, "Who? what's the name of the person involved? And I tell him, he's like, I, I can't help you. And he's like, not only can I not help you, he's like, I'm going I'm I'm to warn you. I'm going to warn you. What? When I was the DA, we said, if you cross one of us, you cross all 57 of us. Oh, this is some kind of elite club. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you, but like, they are all like you are on the wrong side of whatever. Wow. And he's like, I've got to sit this one out because I know both sides. I know both families. I can't help you though. Wow. You know, I can't help so like I can't help you at all. My dad went to him. And then I mean known each other for twenty years, knew me, knew my character reputation, I can't help you. And I remember the time I was kind of dismissive. I was like, what is he talking? Like, even after I what I'd been through in California, remember, they threw out all the charges. Now it, it still ruined the company, right? Yeah. But hey, at least through the court system, you know, like the DA throws out the charges. My BAC was zero point zero. Yeah. I didn't actually assault an officer. Yeah. I didn't do it. Like I didn't. I literally did nothing. Right. So yeah. they throw out the charges as they as they should. And so I had still some confidence in the legal system in terms of like, but that was Santa Clara. This is State College, Pennsylvania. Forty thousand people, fifty six cops, four judges. <laughs> very small and uh you know the trial and all that stuff is not interesting but they offered me a plea deal which everyone begged me to take and the plea deal was going to involve no uh, no no time served and lo and behold the judge ends up giving me a 15 year sentence for misdemeanor charges so I go and serve 40 months in the most violent state prison in the state of Pennsylvania, a prison called SCI Forest, State Correctional Institution at Forest. There's 29 state prisons in Pennsylvania, and I get sent to the most violent state prison. I think three months in the month of three uh, in the month of August alone, August 2016, three people committed suicide that month, three inmates. Wow. Every other week, someone's getting life lighted from getting beat up, from getting assaulted, from getting just badly hurt. Guards got beat. I mean, this was like... Anything happened to you? You know, I I, I, I tell people sometimes Spanish saved my life. Oh. And I spoke, so to bring it back full circle to the Dominican Republic, one of my friends in there, and he would call me Panama because I reminded him of his Panamanian friend. Mm. This could be the difference between life and death and, and, and quote unquote summer camp, which is what we called it. My godmother had two little kids. They were four and eight at the time. And she doesn't want to be like, talk about prison or jail in front of them. So she'd be like, David's away at summer camp. Mm. Right? So when I was quote unquote at summer camp, right? And I, unbeknownst to me, at one time they had wanted to attack me. Here I am, this, you know, outspoken, proper, nerdy black kid where most of the people there almost all if they're a person of color had come from the hood 
the street like a tough life. And there's some people that just, that was enough that they want to come, teach me a lesson, rob me, whatever, whatever, et cetera. And this Puerto Rican guy who was kind of a big shot caller there. He came to them. I found out this months later. And he's like, Panama? That's what he called me. He's like, he don't give nobody no problems. He stays with himself. He does his thing. Yeah, he's a little loud. He's a little, you know, he doesn't belong. But he doesn't, he doesn't do anything to anybody. He doesn't owe anybody money. He doesn't get, gamble. He doesn't nothing. If you guys do something to him, and I find out about it when I come back because he worked in the kitchen, anyone who lays a hand has got a problem with me and my people. Two months later, it was before I even found out this story. And I went to this guy and I said, wow, I can't. He's like, it's nothing. Just, he said, I, and he told me what he took. I, you don't give anybody no problem. Just, you know. And. Wow. What a dude. There, but for the, you know, as I kind of protected, you know. And there was no, like, deal. I didn't owe him anything. There was nothing like that. I didn't ask for it even. He on his own saw me and kind of took me under his wing and just say, hey, he's, and they were like, they were, some of them were mad. Like, he's not even Puerto Rican. He's black. Like, how, you shouldn't be. And he was like, listen, he doesn't give any problem. But of course, our connection was because I was fluent in Spanish. I would, and not only Spanish, Dominican Spanish, mm-hmm. Caribbean Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. Like, remember how he said earlier about the, like, oh, you're from Pennsylvania? I'm from Pennsylvania too. Oh, like, I, I come and I speak Dominican Spanish, like really Dominican Caribbean Spanish. And he's half Puerto Rican, half Dominican. I become one of them, almost like adopted into the family. It's kind of beautiful, actually. There's this scene in the Batman Begins where uh, Christian Bell's character is like, when you lived among the criminals, did you ever become one of them? He's like, and he basically is like. Yeah, temporarily. He's like, temporarily. Yeah. So I became, my, my friends call it hood cash. Because ca- Cash was my name, and you don't go by like your government name. You don't go by like DC Cassidy, and so Cash, because I was a one credit, <laughs> became kind of my nickname at, at summer camp. So my friends would call it. I would call me, and sometimes I would code switch on the phone to the jail personality, the prison personality. They call him Hood Cash Hood because Cash. The, my lingo is different. The way I talk, the way whatever. You know, to match. It's a good title for your film. Hood <laughs> Cash. <laughs> and, uh, but I never became one of them. I never. Yeah, that's good. I could talk to talk, I could walk to walk, but, you know, you joked about violence earlier. And for those people, it's, it's not a joke. Like, yeah. if you do what these people have done to me in the outside world, the real world, and a lot of people I met in there would have absolutely responded with violence. And that's why they're there. Because they did. They were in a situation and they killed somebody or they did what? And I remember never been forgetting a third of the prison was there under DBI. In the state of Pennsylvania, which is a Commonwealth state, by the way, so even worse to get arrested in. Death by incarceration. So a quarter of the people there were never going home. Ever. Under like unless they got like some kind of crazy appeal, which is unlikely to happen. And that's what makes it even more of a violent place. Because what are you gonna threaten someone who's already in prison for life? There's nothing you can, something you can motivate with them. Not like, oh, your parole hearing. What parole hearing? There's no parole hearing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and death is an escape by itself. Death is an escape. Yeah. And death became death became even for me something that 
ended up writing my shit because I was filled with rage and anger and bitterness. And I'll never forget my sister-in-law who was white and whose story had kind of inspired the mixed race kids and the video game story I wanted to tell. And so I was in the hole for and the entire time I was in the county because the county people obviously don't like me at this point, right? The judge, all the other people and the police. So they keep me in the hole. I never get around in general population. I end up writing 65,000 words for a story called Leo and Helen, which was based on my trip to Machu Picchu. Nice. I go to the law library two hours a day. Yeah. For, for I think it was the first three months I wrote it in. And would think of it all day what to write. And two hours in the law library. Couldn't save. You had to print whatever you printed. No edit. It's not could go back and edit. Like you printed what you printed. And like the old school composition books. You just you wrote it, you keep it, you can't you, edit it. You can't edit it and you have you just it. You gotta flip through it. So my sister in law had cancer in twenty eleven. Oh. It was in remission. Oh. And twenty sixteen May I get a call and basically her cancer's come back. Oh. Spread to her brain, her skull, her kidney. I mean, it was this was oh. terminal. Fuck. Four years in remission and a year she's thirty six. My niece and nephew at the time were Maybe 11, maybe 13. Oh. Two young kids at home. And I'm many things, if not an optimist. Literally zero, zero on this scoreboard before I believe that it's over. And like until they, in the army, until I literally base training was over, I still believed the last second someone's going to come and be like, DC, you're going to special forces tryout. Until they slammed the door on me. In 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 twenty AB twenty thirty seven one at SCI Forest, I believe there was a chance that justice would, would come out. And until I my dad visited me, he came with my family friend, I consider him an uncle, and he came to visit me and he's like, I have some bad news to share. And I'm like, everything's been bad news at this point. We've lost every appeal, we've lost everything. He gave me a fifteen year sentence for a misdemeanor but still with no criminal record. And um like, I'm sorry to let you know that your sister in law passed away. And I was shocked. I literally did not speak for 30 minutes. The rest of the visit. I was just like, there's... And you know, what do you mean she... And he's just like, she... The last thing she'd ever said to me, she was like, what you're going through is worse than what I'm going through. Love you. Miss you. I'll see you on the other side. And of course, what I was going through was not going through worse going than dying with cancer. But that's just the level of grace she had. She's the first person in my family to be like, look, nothing has changed. I view you the same. I think it, like we're love you, support you. Yeah. None of this stuff has any, you know, and it didn't affect her in a negative affect, way. So didn't affect she just her. loved you. Yeah. Just because she loved you. And so for her to be the one that would be taken, you know, mm. the best of all of us really. Right. And, um, there's yeah. a Bible verse that goes, there's more wisdom to be found in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting. For a fool seeks out the house of feasting, parties, whatever, but a wise person seeks out the house of mourning. Oh, wow. And I so miss, it was. I missed that one. <laughs> so it was for me, though. It was all the anger, all the rage, all that I can't believe they destroyed my life. You know, all that. Someone's got to pay vengeance, right? I'm the vengeance Batman, right? Yeah, he's he's there. And you're like, whatever happened is over. Like, it's time to move on. Like, the best person I've ever met, best person I know just got taken from us. They're no fault of her own. 
through cancer. The emperor of all maladies has impacted all of us. Wow. And what do I care that I'm in prison for a few years when, you know, the 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 the, the my brother's wife, think about her parents who all survived her, her brother, my niece and nephew who lost their mom. You know, what is three years in prison compared to people who just lost, you know, the their most important person to them? And and so I started, I just, my mindset shifted. I was like, it came to a point at one time, I said, my grandma said, they could leave me in here. I'm only getting better. I'm getting strong. I'm writing more. I ended up writing half a million words. I wrote four books. I read, oh, I read a thousand books in, in, in a four year window. And really the crazy thing is I read like 500 books the first year and like 500 books the last two years in the middle. I was just like playing chess and dominoes and pinochle. I was like depressed, right? Like I wasn't like those, I mean, I'm just, actually really good at chess now and like pinochle and poker but like i wasn't doing anything productive i wasn't like i wasn't advancing myself i was just in this depressed rage hole of and then they hit me with a 12-month parole bump you know and you're just like raging against humanity you know and then christy dies and you're like oh all of that stuff is out the window now yeah and now i'm just focused on the future and and honoring her legacy and getting better and my mom is sick at this point now so i'm like if she dies, then I never get to see her again. Because I haven't seen her for three years. She's too sick to visit me. I don't know. Oh. Like I, Maybe I do go nuclear because I can't even imagine. We got a new team of lawyers. One of my friends that early played Dropbox begged my team to get a team of lawyers. And uh, because my dad's a professor, he's a very academic view. Pre George Floyd, my dad honestly viewed the world very much like a privileged white person, mm. which is like. Oh, people who do things that are wrong go to jail. People who don't do things that are wrong don't go to jail. Mm. If you're in trouble with the cops, it must be because you did something to be in trouble with them. But it's a very cerebral view. It's as if we're all in like a lab and like bias and like humanity and like not, none of that exists and everything is just like factual, right? Yeah. Like again, no one watches the George Floyd video and walks away thinking, oh yeah, this is this is the right thing. This, that was that should have happened, but before the before Ahmaud Arbery Brown and Taylor and George Floyd, even someone like my dad, who's an African man, black, living in America, part of the problem is he lived in Central Pennsylvania, so it's not like you're really, you know, for thirty years, he's not like he's really surrounded by like, you know, some create some crazy stuff, and so we didn't have good lawyers the whole way through. Mm. In his mind, the lawyer a lawyer doesn't change the facts of the case. No rational person would ever think that. That's like an academic bubble. Like, oh, the facts of the case are logically whatever they are, regardless of who's arguing the facts. To which I would always run him. Then why do rich people hire the best lawyers? Why do why do why do people who are sick who have money go get the best doctors if medicine is medicine? Okay, clearly it matters who's doing your medicine yeah. and who's your doctor, who's your treatment, and it matters who's representing you. But he literally could not understand that concept. It's very African, right? Very African. Which is like, if you wouldn't have been in the wrong, done this, then you wouldn't be here right now. Very African mentality. I remember to the point where my white friends even said to said to their kids, we will never treat you the way that his parents are treating him. Never. You could have done the thing and we won't do what they're doing. We're going to give you the best. Pe- like We're going to protect you, basically. Mm. And Did there's a great get- line in, in Did- Trevor Noah, Born a Crime, is like, the African parent says, we're going to teach this kid a lesson. And Trevor Noah writes in one of the last chapters in Born a Crime, and he's like, yeah, but sometimes that lesson, they're never going to outlive it now because you try to let them learn a lesson, 
and now they're literally like their life is destroyed forever. So we get new lawyers. My friends lobby my dad basically. Remember, I'm trapped. Spent all this startup money, whatever, to have nothing left. And, um, you know, of course, people feasting on my decline. Like, here I was, all American, all state, raised money at 23, da 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 da. And then now I'm sitting in a prison cell at 26. And what did the lawyers do? Oh, they filed an appeal. They found about 100 things that were wrong. The biggest thing was the DA was sleeping with the judge. What the fuck? Yeah, Slate did a national article on it. Uh, on the DA was sleeping with. I two. want to read that. DA, the DA was sleeping with two of the judges actually at the Ew. same time. Yeah, just remember, there's only four judges. She's sleeping with two of them. She's got a three. In fact, there's only t- t- three. Assuming she's had her, maybe she's, who knows? There's only three male judges of, of the four judges. That's her type. She's sleeping with two, the two of the judges, both married, and of course. And a judge and the and a prosecutor are not supposed to have ex parte communications. Yeah, they're not supposed to talk about the cases outside of. Can't even smile at each other in the corridor. She, of course, tries to delete her phone. Tries does delete a lot of the messages. They never find a smoking gun for my case, oh. but it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out she's been texting the judge she's been sleeping with about every case that she had. Good, which explained why my sentence, which was supposed to be parole. Ended up being a 15-year maximum sentence as if I were a violent criminal. And all, like, remember, people believe the first thing they're told. So initially, wow, 15 years, he must have really done something wrong. I remember even the guards, the COs, would be like, we don't have anyone else at this entire prison who's only here for misdemeanors. They give you a 15-year sentence for misdemeanors? Like, like we've Googled, like, we've looked you up, like, because guards have to have access to all your charges. Because you might have a weird charge. And they have to know that because they got to protect you or put you in protective custody or whatever. So looking at my thing, like, what is something missing from your case? You you should not be here. Guards would tell me this. Your test, like, what? Like, That's something so is interesting. Something is very wrong here. And you're probably already mind blown having this dialogue with the guards. <laughs> like, what? You're on my side? What, what yeah. the fuck? You're and supposed just to like, like you're not. And in retrospect, of course, of course look at me like. Did those guards testify for you? No, no, because they're not. They had nothing to do with the case. But like they, they just knew that I didn't belong there. Right. They're like, there's no way based on your oh, charges. I, I thought they like dug in deeper on their own time and they'd be no, like, No, I wish that could have been that could have been a part DC of the story. Didn't really do anything. So they get the uh, I parole out, take okay. a domestic violence class, which originally I was resisting, so I didn't do anything wrong, much less DV. But I learned a lot about relationships, and most <laughs> relationships go bad over power and control. Yeah, over power. That's like they had like a whole power control oh, wheel. That's of scary. Shit. Unhealthy relationships, and they're like, on, relationships go bad over power and control. One side wants power or control over the other side, and that is like the wheel. They have the wheel, yeah. and they're like, that's where it goes in levels of abuse. Starts as emotional or psychological, financial, and then it goes obviously to people who are actually doing like really, really bad things. And you know, I'd resisted it and finally took the course. It's like, oh, it ended up being good. I learned a lot. You know, it was tricky because. I hadn't done anything wrong, okay, like criminally. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, should I have associated myself with this family? Probably not, obviously, in retrospect. But had I broken the law? No. So you got to go to parole and be like, I was wrong for... <laughs> to help her yeah. by showing up yeah. like she asked. Y- you know, so like, 
So you kind of have to be like, you have a fine line because you, if you don't admit or whatever, tell them that you're rehabilitated, they're just going to deny you parole. On the other hand, you're like, I, I'm literally fighting an appeal. Like, I'm not, you know. And so I, I went with the honest tracks. I was like, guys, listen, I'm fighting an appeal right now. And, you know, I don't believe I'm guilty of these charges. And I believe that evidence was up. On the other hand, you know, I apologize for things I could apologize for being in this situation. Anything way that the family, other other family felt, I've taken on the class and commit myself to be better. I, you know, I, I can't ultimately accept guilt for something that oh. I'm in the midst of fighting. But, you know, I, I can accept responsibility for whatever, whatever. That I parole out by the end of 2017, they get the chart, they get the whole case shut down. Oh. But the superior court can't toss out a case. All they can do is reject whatever's been done, and basically kick it back down. Uh, okay. So now it gets back to kick back down to the common court. By then, DA has been completely smashed in the election. She lost two to one. The one judge resigned in disgrace. The other judge literally was censured by the state of Pennsylvania Judicial Court. The top judge violates his own DUI probate. Like literally, of the three judges that touched my case at all, they're all gone. This is what the Batman is based on. <laughs> right? They're wow. they're all these judges are gone. The DA is gone. The judges are gone. The ADA who was like the they are all gone. And I write an email to friends. I said, written on the walls of Chateau Deef at Mondontes, right? In Canada Cristo. God will give me justice. And he did. Anyone that had anything to do with my case so you were is pretty gone, relieved is gone in disgrace. I mean, the, I, the court, gonna... the it goes back to the common court, and they now they all come back to me and say again, now you can plead uh, no contest, and you know this time it's all fair. It's going to go that way, and there's a saying that you have in the summer camp in the hood. Now you guys can get it in blood. You can come get it in blood, and it basically means like you got to go to war if you think you're gonna. Get me to you know whatever I we played that game before where I was gonna no contest whatever which is like a non admission admission of guilt basically right and I was like no they can come get it in blood like my sister is dead by now my mom had passed away the previous summer and I was like you guys took everything you could take from me my freedom my and I'm not saying they took my sister law they had nothing to do with her death but my mom I I would argue and I think a lot of people would argue that the stress of seeing her youngest son. Like when I got out, she looked like she'd aged twenty years, and certainly she had pre-existing conditions before, you know, chronic conditions before. But it wouldn't have been easy for her to see me go through, you know, prison. <laughs> and so I said to my lawyers, I was like, everything that possibly could be taken from me, everything has yeah, been taken from me. It's taken. They literally have to go to war if they think that I'm ever gonna whatever. Or they can admit the truth, which they know that I never did anything, and admit it. They dropped the charges. Nice, completely, complete exoneration. Dropped all the charges. Of course, they're not going to release a statement and be like, because that's just not how prosecutors work. They're not going to like release a statement and be like, "Hey, we messed up." Number one, they would be open to litigation. Number two, they're arrogant. They're never going to admit. And and to be honest, from their perspective, like it wasn't even their case. It was the other DA's case, you know. And so like, but you're clean now, clean record and everything. And, um, you, you know, though. I get out and even though the whole department of state college police has been disgraced since then, like they end up killing, you know, a, a, a immensely ill, you know, black guy, a family friend, actually they end up killing him, shot him oh, three times in the back, but the claimed fuck? that he was a threat to them. Didn't have body cameras. Oh my God. You know, the whole thing. And, um, this is 20. 
2018, I want to say, 2018, 2019. Again, pre George Floyd, pre BLM, oh. and uh, you know, oh, he had a knife. You look at the, you look at the report. He, he had a butter knife, like you know what I mean, like the, you know. But the way the cops dramatize, he had a serrated knife. Yeah, okay, a butter knife is technically yeah, butter serrated. knife, bro. You know, so he had a butter knife. Like, yeah, you look for at butter. The, he had a butter knife. Yeah, and for they bread. They shot him three times in the back, and like literally, they're still now under litigation, and like basically, they got exposed. And exposed for the lies for kind of who they were, and that idea of protecting. We're going to protect our people uh-huh. when they when they do the bad stuff. So, you know, after that, like like I said, I think seeing justice helped. Was e- it was easier to turn the corner when I got justice personally, and when I saw justice handed out to other people. Hmm. Seeing the DA lose, she got her law license stripped for two years because of all her misconduct in office. Like for a district attorney to get their two law li- law license stripped. Is like the it's like the death penalty for like for you to be a prosecutor who has basically near immunity. Like a prosecutor is near God level immunity. Yeah. So for a prosecutor to have her law license stripped is like them basically saying you are scum of the earth as a lawyer. <laughs> like because the things you did while you were a prosecutor are still not protected under immunity because you were so you were so scummy. So I saw these people kind of get their come up and and I'm like, all right, I'm turning the corner. I go, I ski, I snowboard, I learned a motorcycle, I learned to sail. You know, I go back to SF. And the book that I wrote when I was in prison. Yeah. We post a little video on it at Reddit. One day, I get an email. Hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm an executive producer of Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider-Man Homecoming, Avengers, Iron Man 2. My dad used to live in South America a little bit when I was a kid. He just went down all the movie lists. I would love to read a copy of your book and talk about making making a movie what with you. What the fuck? <laughs> well, how did he find the book? This is on Reddit. On Reddit. Unpublished main Executives go on Reddit? That I wrote. 100%. That's why Marvel movies are good. Because the Marvel executives are actually listening to what fans say. <laughs>